Okay, let's go ahead and uh, pray again and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we come before you asking that you would assist us in our contemplation of your word this afternoon, that you would open our mind and our eyes uh, to see and to understand, to fathom the very depths of the love of Christ and what it is to imitate that love. It is truly something that seems simple, uh, but at the same time, in many ways, um, insurmountable. And so we ask, Lord, that you would assist us, give us a commitment to love one another just as you have loved us, uh, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we have before us a topic today, as, as I even had said in the prayer, uh, a topic that would seem truly insurmountable. Um, a topic that would be something that seems out of reach in many ways, and it is that of imitating the love of Christ. And so it probably goes without saying, but I assure you I will not do this topic justice, Um, but I hope in some way uh, to walk us through, by God's grace, various aspects of the love of Christ and what it would look like to imitate it. Uh, We could say that imitating Christ's love... um, is the very bedrock of what it is to be a Christian. To love is the foundation of naming the name of Christ, and it's really been this way from the beginning. If you think of uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, when Christ was asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And we know Christ's response. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And so we see that the greatest commandment can be summarized uh, by love. Love for God first and foremost, and love for our fellow man. Uh, This is the very essence of being like God. And I think we'll see that as we kind of move through this and look at the aspects of where uh, this love uh, begins, right? We read that love is from God and that God is love. And it is this love that Christ exemplified to the utmost. It is this love that we are to imitate. And so as you see on the board, we have the outline. Um, It's going to be basically walking through a very straightforward point in many ways, a a point that we all know, the command to love. Um, We're going to look at what is love. If we're to love, then we need to understand what is love. Um, And then finally, looking at various aspects of the love of Christ, right? Because we've got to understand what was his love, what are the components of his love, if we're going to imitate it properly, right? Um, and so, like I said, very straightforward. Um, first, right, we understand that there's a command to love. To love is not an option, right? Just like any of these, it's not an option. Um, this is something that every one of us knows. We know these passages that we're about to walk through. 
But at the same time, we need to allow the full weight of Christ's words to bear upon us. And so we have three passages to look at. Who wants to read John 13, 34 through 35? Matthews, okay. Who wants to read John 15, 12? Max? And then Jai, if you want to get John 15, 17. <clears throat> All right, so John 13, 34 and 35. Chris? Uh, yeah, go ahead, sorry. In John fifteen twelve. Mm. And then finally John fifteen seventeen. This I command you that you love one another. Yeah, and so we can see that Christ was very explicit. He didn't leave anything up to interpretation. He left no room for misunderstanding as if this is something you maybe should do, you might do. No, it's something that we must do. There's no other option. Um, he was leaving his disciples. That's what we see actually in verse 33 of John 13. And so he is telling them he is going away. He'll only be with them a little while longer. And he instructs them at how they are to then carry out and how they are to live while he is gone. Um, and it is his very um, example of love that they are to imitate. Uh, this love, right, is not um, left up to our own desire as to how it is to be demonstrated. We are not left to be the definers of what this love is. It is qualified, if you will. Uh, the love that we're to have for one another is to be according to what? What's the love that we're to have, right? We see these key words. We see the just as... And the even as language. So just as, even as what? That's right. That is the qualifier. It's not love how you think you should love. He has left for us an example of what that love looks like. And so we, if you recall, these are the words of imitation. Imitation implied, right? It is Christ's demonstration of that love that we are to imitate. This is simple enough. It appears to be simple enough. And yet this is something that is not, if we're honest, very simple. Uh, this is something that we certainly assent to knowing. And yet if we examine how we live, how we love, and hopefully in light of the things that we walk through, we'll question, do we really know this command? Or do we just merely know what it states? This is what one commentator said. The new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate. Profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Love one another. Anybody can recite it. The youngest children can recite it. The, 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 the oldest and most experienced Christian 
can claim to know it. And yet, how many of us truly do it? That's the essence of what he is saying. And so the purpose, the hope, is to walk through this and to truly consider, how does the Bible define love? How does the Bible describe what love is? How did Christ love us? And so we must define that, right? And I want to do it by looking at two aspects, almost in a compare and contrast way. One, what would be the world's definition, and then the uh, biblical definition. We could certainly just look at only the biblical and walk away and understand, okay, this is what the biblical definition is. But as I thought through this, I thought it's good to do this comparison because we will see how diametrically opposed the world's definition of love is compared to the biblical definition of what love is. And it will give us some sense of the very depths that we must go to in our love for one another. So here's how I see uh, the world's uh, definition versus what we'll look at from a biblical uh, perspective. How many have heard the phrase, love is love? What is this phrase generally associated with? LGBTQ, whatever, right? That is what they use as their slogan uh, to promote that they have love. And I believe it is a good summary of the world's definition of love. Because we need to think about um, what is this actually communicating? What it's communicating is, in many ways, there is no cost to love. Love is what you want to do. Love is what makes you happy. Don't encroach on what somebody else wants to do. Let them do what they want to do, and I'll do what I want to do, and we're being loving. In many ways, it's just saying be tolerant of each other and your views. And so this love, according to the world, is subjective. Subjective. It's up to what you think and what I think, and there's no absolute. There's no absolute. It's at the whim of every person's desire. Love, according to the world, and this is the key phrase, self-centered. It is self-focused. But how does the Bible define love? Yeah. It's a, it minimizes it just say it's just love. It almost like it's no more than just love. Mm-hmm. It totally minimizes yeah. the, the lowest common denominator that you can't really push back on. Yeah. There's no questioning it because it doesn't hold to anything. There's no foundation to it, really. It'll change. Uh, what is love one day may not be love the next day. Yeah, that makes sense. Why? Because it's self-centered. Oftentimes what you see that 
when the world loves is it comes from selfish motives. They love to get something in return. I think that's a great point. That is why they do it. And we have to be careful that we don't allow the view of the world's definition, right? We would say, no, we don't agree with that. But how does the world's view creep into our, the love that we show? Well, I don't know if we're going to necessarily be intolerant, per se. I think that we speak out on certain things, and we should. To me, it's how much self-centeredness, what are our motives behind why we love each other? I'm going to do X because then they'll do this for me, or I'll be viewed this way, or whatever the case may be. This, to me, I believe is, you know, this is clear. We're, we're never going to agree with this. But the way the world can kind of creep into our understanding and expression of love is by our motives. I think you can say that that love is love as long as that person fits in the category of what I consider loving towards the world. Because once they step outside of that category of what pleases that individual to say he loves, then love can see. That's right. There's an inconsistency, right? It's, It's they say... They say, I love, you, I love you, do what you want to do, but the minute you encroach on their area, all of a sudden that love is gone. And they're not, they're not okay with that. It's always right. That's right. And so what we have to be careful of is that our definition of love doesn't ever fall into the world's definition, that it's different. And so when we think of love and the definition of love, what would we generally think of? What's the definition that readily comes to mind? Yeah, from a biblical perspective. Yeah, so we're going to get to that. That is, I mean, you're going to steal my thunder, I guess. I, that's, what I get, that's what I get for asking, but that's ultimately where we end up, right? But what we normally think of is what? 1 Corinthians 13, right? As a definition, we think of, of uh, that passage, four, verses 4 through 7. It says, love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, that is most assuredly an accurate description of love. And these are various, these are what I would call uh, characteristics of love. Characteristics of love. And Christ most certainly exhibited each of these to the utmost. He was the most patient, the most kind, the most humble, not bragging, not looking to himself, uh, certainly not rejoicing in unrighteousness, However, these particular characteristics of love are not necessarily what we have in our direct purview in considering 
what is it that we're imitating in the love of Christ? In fact, I would say that these particular characteristics of love are the byproduct of truly imitating Christ and His love. And that is because, as was said, the biblical definition is self-sacrificial. Do you see the, two, the, the difference between these two? One is you're focusing on yourself and what you want. And the other is completely giving of yourself for what others want. Now that has to be qualified. Obviously, it's not giving of yourself for any sinful purposes, right? But you are certainly giving of yourself. Right? That's true. Uh, it, you're, you're not going to expect to get anything back. That goes back to our motives that the world has of why they love, why they claim to love. And so this is how I see it. You're going to be, if you're self-sacrificial, you're going to be patient. You're going to be kind. You're not going to rejoice in unrighteousness. I see these characteristics of love stemming from the overarching summary of love, which is self-sacrificial. That if we truly have a self-sacrificial approach to our love for one another, it will be displayed by these various characteristics. So let's look at some proof texts as far as the nature of this uh, self-sacrificial love. Uh, where does the thrust of this come from? Well, we looked at one earlier, John fifteen twelve through 13. We read there, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. To, to be self-sacrificial for one another, there's no greater way to love one another than to be self-sacrificial. And this is exactly what Christ did. This is what He exemplified. He showed forth the greatest love that could be shown by giving Himself on the cross. His death was the supreme expression of love. But we also see this later. It's as if John took Christ's teachings uh, here as he heard them and then recorded them in the Gospels and then restates it and even develops it further. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, And we ought to, there's that phrase again, lay down our lives for the brethren. And so there are a few things to notice here. First, the only way that we know what true love is, is not by how we've defined it, not by how the world's defined it. Remember, we don't develop the definition. The way that we know what true love is, is through what Christ did in laying down His life. God Himself showed us what love is. That is how we know love. Because love is from God. God is love. And secondly, we see here the responsibility tied. If you recall, we talked about that to lay claim to knowing Christ from the very first class, 
right, is to have an obligation or a responsibility that follows. There's no laying claim to following Christ and to knowing him without truly then following in what is required. So it's not just enough for us to sit here and marvel at the love that he has shown us, but um, we are to um, examine that and consider how are we to lay down our lives for one another? What does that consist of? When we're talking about day to day, we'll get into that, but it, you know, is, it, is it that I should truly go and literally die for you? Is that what's in view here? Possible. What's that? Possibly. Right, that's true. It's possible that that could be in view here. But on the regular, right, it's, it's not going to likely be me jumping in front of a car for you or whatever the case may be. It's going to be worked out in our day-to-day interaction with each other. And we'll get into that. I'm kind of getting ahead a little bit. Let's turn to 1 John 4, verse 7. There, it truly is remarkable if you look at the Gospel of John and what he has written there in relation to Christ's teaching on love. And then you read 1 John and you see just the immense overlap between these two. Uh, it has truly been um, a joy to be able to do that. But 1 John 4, 7 through 11, if you think about it, the prior verse that we just looked at in chapter 3, verse 16, John specifically identified Christ laying down his life. And that is how we know love, and that is the impetus behind why we should love one another, and it's the example of how we are to love one another. But here in this verse, John, in a sense, takes us to a higher level. Uh, He points us to the very origin of self-sacrificial love. He points us to God the Father. Listen to what we read in this passage. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So there's a few things to note here. First, the origin of love is found in God. He says, for love is from God in verse 7. And then if we look just briefly at verse 10... It's, it's as if he's trying to be clear. He states, And this is love. Not that we loved God. That's not where love starts. As if we are the, the initiators of that. 
but that He loved us. I'm sure coming to mind is 1 John 4.19. Right? We love because He first loved us. And so we clearly see that the origin of love is found in God. And in many ways you can see when you reject that and reject the biblical definition of love, this is what you're left with. Because we don't know what love is. There's no foundation outside of the biblical definition of love. Secondly, the manifestation of love is seen in the Father sending His Son. We read in verse 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world. And then in verse 10, very similar, we read that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so you have this expression of love, you have this manifestation of love, and in verse 11, surprise, surprise, we have the obligation. We have the obligation again. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's a responsibility yet again that we see that follows. And so, along those lines, here's how I think this looks conceptually. Very simple, okay? We have the Father, we have the Son, whoops, <laughs> Father, we have the Son, we have uh, us or you individually, and then we have others, right? Okay. We are told that the Father loved us. He loved us. Uh, this is what we just looked at in 1 John 4, 7 through 11. And He manifested that love through His Son coming to be a propitiation for our sins. Okay? And at the same time, we read of, in Scripture, the Son loving the Father. And we think of John 5 where he says, the things I see in my Father, I do. And what he saw in the Father was one thing he saw, self-sacrificial love. The Father was self-sacrificial in his love. How? That's right. He gave His Son on our behalf. And so the Son, if you imagine an eternity past, is approached, and you know as they communicated within the Godhead, and said, we're going to create, we're going to make man in our image, and what it's going to require is you to go and to give yourself. Right? Now, the Son self-sacrificially loved the Father. He certainly loved us, right? The other arrow comes down here. He most definitely loved us, but he also self-sacrificially loved the Father. He willingly went. He wasn't coerced to go. And we'll look at this a little bit later when we consider aspects of Christ's love. 
And here's the culmination of all this. It doesn't just end in us. It's not all about us. It's not just about you. He died for you individually. He died for the church collectively. And here is what is supposed to happen. That love then goes to others. That love goes to others. It doesn't stop here. It goes to others. And so when we think of 1 John 4, 7-11 through 11, and what is presented there, and we look at all these other verses of loving Christ as He has loved us, conceptually in my mind, this is kind of how I thought it through. So, a lot of arrows, but what is interesting is, is that you know, sometimes we think, oh, well, the Son loved us and we're loving just that. No, but the Father was also an example for us. That it starts ultimately with the fact that God is love ontologically. And then he expresses that love through his Son for us. And that we then take that. And in many ways, what does he even say later? It's by your love for one another, right? What, what's the result of that? If we truly love one another, who's an example to? The world. the world, that's right. The world then sees Christ. That is the key, right? We want to show forth Christ. We want to magnify Christ. We want to lift him up and we want the world to see him. And then it's not being busy about doing a lot of things. In many ways, it is quite simple love one another. So, there you have it. We clearly see, and unfortunately I had to erase the the world definition, but we clearly see then that between the world's view and the biblical view, they're opposite. They couldn't be more opposite. One is all about you. It ends here. It starts here and it ends here. For the world, it starts there and ends there. For us, it starts with God comes to us and then goes to others so we have to consider in this case christ's self-sacrificial love Um, we've certainly looked at all the language of just as even as ought to Uh, we see ephesians 5 1 and 2 almost in line with something like this where it says be imitators of god as dearly beloved children and walk in love. So you're imitating God. You're walking in love. And so we see that we're imitating. When we do this, it's we're imitating God in many ways. Uh, both the Father, the Son, and their self-sacrificial love. It says, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's the example we're to follow. And so I want us to ponder on exactly what this self-sacrificial love involved. What did it involve? We can certainly say the first thing that probably comes to our mind is his death. He gave himself for us. We know that. I don't know where I'm going to write it, but I guess I'll just take this here. The first aspect is his willingness This is a key aspect. Why is willingness key? Sure, he was being obedient, right? Uh, In my mind, what I'm thinking of is 
If it's forced upon you, is that self-sacrificial? No, that's somebody taking you and making you do something that you don't want to do. If, what's that? Right. It's, it's not coerced. And this is what we see with Christ. He wasn't coerced or manipulated. When the Father came to him and said, you will need to give your life. Christ didn't say no, and then the Father forced him. He willingly gave himself. He was intentional in his love for us. He desired to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually uh, one of the verses I was going to reference. That is a key verse. It's, if, if they took his life from him, then he, he's not sacrificing. That's clear. <laughs> when he willingly lays it down and allows them to take his life, that is is self-sacrifice. That is giving himself. He says, I am the good shepherd in John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So therefore, this is one aspect of our imitating Christ's love. Our love needs to involve willingness. There must be a willingness for us to pour ourselves out even as like Paul described a pouring himself out as a drink offering on behalf of the church we're not to do this begrudgingly Christ loved us and gave himself for us so if we're going to love one another just as he loved us if we're if we're following it to a T it involves willingness Another aspect is his uh, condescension, something like that. His condescension. His condescension. It is spelled correctly on my computer. I just didn't want to. We need to allow this to sink in. This is something we certainly looked at when we walked through the Incarnation. But picture this, Christ had unfathomable glory, uninterrupted fellowship and communion with his Father. He had myriads of angels worshiping him and praising him. We get this glimpse in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. 3 we're all familiar with that. That says, In the year King of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it is this glory that he willingly laid aside. We read in 2 Corinthians 8-9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, 
so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so consider this poverty. This is very simple, very summarized. He takes on the likeness of sinful flesh. He is born in a manger. Not only born in a manger, but born in Nazareth, which if you recall when we went through this, not a desirable town, not a wealthy town, uh, was more of a soldier type town. Two poor parents. They weren't wealthy. He didn't lay aside his glory and then was born into this, you know, rich, well-to-do family in a palace. And, and then think of his occupation. He was a carpenter, uh, which was not a very well-paying job. And then finally, think of his death. It was that of a criminal. Christ descended to depths that we cannot fathom. The depth of his self-sacrificial love, we can certainly never match. We'll never be able to imitate that to its fullest. But based on the condescension of Christ and his example of self-sacrificial love that was shown therein, there should be nothing that we're not willing to do out of love for one another. We will never go to the depths that he went to. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. We will never meet that. But it should mean that we're willing to do anything out of love for one another. He descended, he condescended great depths and that's what we should do. I think that's, that's the imitation here. We will not condescend as much as he has to the depths that he has. But our self-sacrificial love involves in some sense condescending to one another. Oftentimes I think what we see is in our pride, we're like, well, I'm not going to do that for that person. Or oftentimes, if we're honest, what we're thinking is, well, they should be doing this for me. And that is where the world definition or the world's view of love starts to creep in. But who cares if anybody ever loves us? We don't love others because they loved us or we hope that they'll love us. We love others because of what Christ has done for us. And then obviously, his sacrificial death. Again, this is another aspect. We, we won't, we're, we're never going to be dying on behalf of somebody to secure their salvation in that sense. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the last time I shared the gospel with someone and they said thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's usually my track is ripped up or something. But 
Yeah. Mm. Mm. It's a powerful quote. We all understand from a sacrificial standpoint uh, the, the, the magnitude of his death. What does that look like for us? Well, like we said, it could involve truly, literally dying for each other. But on the day-to-day, this is, this is how I kind of thought through this. The principle remains the same. We must die to ourselves, uh, to our interests, our desires, our wants, our time, our possessions, such as money, and potentially, like I said, if our very life may be required at some point. So this is what I think that looks like on a day-to-day basis, and that's constantly shifting and changing depending upon what situation we're in. We have to be aware uh, we all know those instances where we're interacting and we know well, I really should die to myself in this case on behalf of a brother or sister or I know I need to give up my time to go help or whatever the case may be. Uh, that is sacrificing ourselves in many ways uh, as well. But like Trisha said, we have to consider who is in view. Certainly the church, that is, that is shown forth. That's why he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. It is clearly the church that is in view. That's, that, there's no disputing that. That is even what is primarily in view. For the purpose of showing forth Christ, by this all men will know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. But it also involves the world around us. Christ died for who? The ungodly. He died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. He didn't, he didn't come and die for us because we loved him. And he said, well, now that they love me, okay, I'll go die for them. He did it that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, while we were separate from him, without God in the world, he died for us. He gave himself for us. He self-sacrificially loved us. And that is what we are to do for the world around us. As much as possible. Obviously, not if it involves sin. And in many ways, what that looks like, even though they won't see it this way, what that looks like is proclaiming the truth to them. Evangelism, as was said. They're not going to want to hear that. They're going to look at that as mean, as uh, hate speech, whatever the case may be. But nonetheless, according to the biblical definition of love, that's true love. That's genuine love. It could be manifested in other ways outside of evangelism, where you are dying to yourself for their sake. Um, And that is what is necessary as well. It's not just, it's primarily us loving one another. We must love one another. That's how we're showing forth Christ. But even to the church or to the, to, the, to the world around us, uh, we must exemplify this self-sacrificial love. There's one other aspect of Christ's love that I want to point out here before we end. It's that his love was continual. It's his love was steadfast. Um, we read that in John 13, 1. 
There we read, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, we read this, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There was never a time when Christ questioned or doubted whether or not he would go to the cross. He was committed to do the Father's will. He was committed uh, to love the world by the very giving of himself. Think about that. No matter how heavy the weight of the cross became, as it drew nearer and nearer and nearer, where he is in the garden, sweating great drops of blood, in anguish over about what he is to go through, and he does it anyway. And then when he is hung on the cross and people are taunting him to come down, just come down. We'll believe in you. That would be so appealing. We would want to justify ourselves in that moment. But Christ, knowing the necessity of his death, loved his own to the very end. That for us, he went through that, all the way through that, even to being separated from the Father as a result of sin, right? Knowing that he would eventually be with him again. Um, This is the continual steadfast love that Christ has shown us. And so we certainly must be self-sacrificial in our love, but it doesn't mean that we're, okay, well, I was self-sacrificial before, and I've been self-sacrificial towards them previously, and I'm all set now. We need to be continual and steadfast in our love for one another. All the way through, no matter how many times, no matter how deep we must condescend, we must be continual and steadfast in our love for one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his love of us has nothing to do with us. I think that's a great point. It's it's not performance like based on our performance, and therefore our love of others shouldn't be based on what they did or did not do. Um, it has no view to that. It is completely self-sacrificial. You're giving of yourself, not on the basis of what they did, because that's not how Christ loved us. It wasn't he gave himself on the basis of us loving him. He gave himself willingly um, while we were his enemies, for his enemies. Um, That is remarkable. And that is uh, really how I see... uh, you know, as, as we contemplate the love of Christ and the imitation of that love, it's self-sacrificial, it's continual, and it involves willingness, condescension, and dying to ourselves. Any f- final comments or thoughts? Yeah, and that's where I think, you know, certainly the world is our enemy. Uh, the, the, there's no friendship there. There should be no friendship there. 
Um, and so that's why I'm saying, even in this case, it extends to the world. How hard is that? To die to ourselves for somebody that's in the world? And yet, really, it's, it's like we were all in the world and Christ died for us and self-sacrificially gave himself for us. So, okay, let's go worship.